Amen. If you have your Bibles now, remain standing. Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 13. And our sermon text for this morning is verses 44 to 46 of Matthew chapter 13. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. Again, the kingdom of heaven, I'm sorry, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. My soul clings to the dust. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we dedicate all of this time to You through the Lord Jesus Christ and by Your Holy Spirit. And we ask that He would work in our hearts, that You would send Him here now that we would be built up in joy and in love for You. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever possessed anything of great value. I think few of us probably do. Maybe you've got uh, real estate. uh, Maybe some old baseball cards that you keep tucked away and stored so nobody can look at them and and bend the corners. Um, I remember... Perhaps the most valuable purchase I've made, apart from a home, I think, was uh, the time that I went and bought my wife's engagement ring. And I was recommended to me to go and visit a man by the name of Tom Neville in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. He was a former New England patriot. And so I remember he had a, his uh, jewelry store, if you would call it that, was up on the top of the Regents Bank Tower, and you had to have an appointment to go and visit Tom. And you walk in, and he has all of these gemstones laid out in his lobby, and you sit there, and behind, he is behind a locked door. And I remember I became, as soon as I walked into this lobby where you sit by yourself, there's no one there to greet you, I immediately became aware of how dismally I was dressed to be in this facility. And he let me in, and he was a very kind man, actually towering above me, as it were. But I remember it was a very... Uh, daunting thing to go in and buy something of such value, but the whole experience reminded you that you are here and this is an extraordinary purchase, except for somebody of my humble means. I probably bought the cheapest ring he'd ever sold. However, I remember that moment and the magnitude of it. And Christ, as we continue to, to think about the nature of His kingdom, now wants us to recognize the value of His kingdom. That if we were to put a price on it, the kingdom of Christ exceeds the value of anything you have here on this earth. There's nothing like it. Nothing like it. We've gone through these parables so far and Jesus has taught us that that there are certain men who are in the kingdom from all eternity and some men who are not in the kingdom from all eternity. And I think one of the things that 
we've talked about that distinction that that there are sons of God and there are sons of the devil. And and God has known these men from all eternity and their extinctions. They've been known to him. And, And so I think one of the questions that may remain for us is, well, how do men, how is this distinction made? Are men... Are men, as it were, born, born into the kingdom? Do they know from the moment that they're born that they're sons of God? Are they, are they set apart? Um, how does that happen? Maybe that's one of the questions that we would wrestle with. How do you get in? And Jesus, in some sense, explains that to us this morning, and we'll look at it in four points. But what he shows us is that God graciously enables men to discover Christ's kingdom where they embrace it and give up all for it and in which they find everlasting joy. And we'll notice that men find the kingdom, men embrace the kingdom, men give up everything for the kingdom, and then finally, men find everlasting joy in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So first of all, let's notice that men find the kingdom. And I think this parable teaches us something very important because we don't um, enter into the kingdom immediately. There, There is an entryway into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You must enter it. You must find it. Notice as we look at the parable, we're going to look at the parable of the of the treasure and of the pearl together because they belong together. Jesus in verse 44 said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in the parable of the pearl in verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So these, both of these men, they find the treasure and the pearl. And so we might liken this to the way that God reveals the kingdom of Jesus Christ to you and me. We don't just come, wake up one day and know of the kingdom of Christ. It has to be revealed to us. And I think what this reminds us of is that by nature, by nature, we do not belong to Christ's kingdom. You don't belong to Christ's kingdom. You don't come forth from birth wearing the clothes of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We come into it from outside, do you see? This means that by nature you are ruled and dominated by something other than Jesus Christ. By nature you are ruled and dominated by something other than Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible, turn over with me to Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is using this imagery of slavery to talk about our life before Christ and the life after Christ. Look with me at Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, 
or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, now notice these words, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You see that Paul here is defining the Christian church as men and women and children who once were slaves of sin. And so this takes us all the way back, doesn't it, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Remember there that, that in the curse, God is, is making a distinction between those who would come from Eve and those who would come from the serpent. Both would have children. And what we learn is that the children of the devil and the children of God come from the same source. We begin outside the kingdom. It must be something shown to us. By nature, you are ruled by sin. But as we go on in Romans 6, notice what Paul says there, verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Do you see then, this is the picture of coming under the dominion of Jesus Christ as a king. When your eyes are opened to his kingdom, how do I know? I become a slave to righteousness. The shackles of sin are broken for me. Why? Because now Christ reigns over me by His Holy Spirit. He teaches me the truth. He leads me in the truth. He becomes my shepherd, leading me in the paths of righteousness, causing me to lie down in green pastures. But notice also as we turn back to Matthew chapter 14, I'm sorry, verse chapter 13, that you can come into the kingdom from different positions. You might think that the kingdom is revealed to men as they are on a spiritual quest and maybe climbing a mountain to see a shaman or something like that. But notice these men, they come from different positions. Go back to verse 44 of Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Now this man is a worker in the field. He's Possibly a a day laborer who's working in someone else's field. And we're going to touch on this in just a moment. But he's probably not a man of much means. And then in verse 45, what kind of man do we have there? A merchant in search of fine pearls. He's a seller of pearls. So on the one hand, we've got a day laborer. And on the other hand, we have a man who perhaps is very, very wealthy. But they both come from the same position they both have to enter the kingdom one is a worker perhaps poor one is a pearl dealer perhaps wealthy and as they are going about their business not necessarily on a religious journey to find themselves in their day-to-day business they come to Christ and this reminded me of the story of Lydia remember that there is an ordinary day for her as she's selling her wares, her purple cloth on the banks of the river to make money for her family. And there is where she ran into Paul. And Paul was not evangelizing on the street corner, just doing his day-to-day business. And there he encountered Lydia and shared the gospel. And what happened? She was saved and her whole household was baptized. Or the story of the Philippian jailer. Definitely not a man on a religious journey. But there, as he's doing his day-to-day work, he's serving as a faithful Roman guard, or so he thought. He becomes struck by fear when when the, the men are led out, Paul and Silas. And in that moment, 
he is brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And their ordinary day-to-day work, they come from different positions. And I think as we consider this truth that men have to enter into the kingdom, it has to be discovered unto them, taught to them, shown to them. We remember that it is incumbent upon us to discover the kingdom of Christ, isn't it? Have you found the kingdom of Christ? Do you understand the parameters of His reign? Do you desire to think as He does? In Proverbs chapter 23, verse 23, we read this, Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. We are urged by Scripture to enter into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, to study after it, to look for it. And then secondly, not just to find it, but to embrace it. This is our second point. To embrace men, embrace the kingdom of Christ. We must embrace it. You must come to Christ. It's not sufficient to think of it just as a birthright or just something that I am or I was baptized one day and therefore I have this status. But we embrace the kingdom of Christ. Notice what the worker did in verse 44. What did he do when he found that treasure in the field? He went and he sold everything that he had and he bought that field. He bought it. What did the merchant do? He bought the pearl. And we, I think here is a place where you have to be careful about taking this to mean that somehow you and I buy our salvation. You might see how somebody could come to that conclusion. Well, I, I need to, to buy the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I need to, to do something to obtain it. But when Jesus talks about buying His kingdom, we find it in words like these in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's Isaiah 55 verse 1. And so what's indicated here is that these men made a conscious decision to buy. They recognized the value of these treasures and they bought it. They took it to themselves. This was a conscious thing, not an unconscious thing. Likewise for us, coming to Christ is a conscious decision. John Calvin and the Reformers argued against the, the Roman Catholic idea of implicit faith. In other words, you know, whatever the church tells me to believe, that's what I'm going to believe. I'm just an ordinary Christian. I cannot understand the Bible like the magisterium arrayed in all of their glory. But when we read parables like this, what does it say? No, you as an individual, Christ wants you to understand and embrace all that He teaches about His kingdom. It is a firm, John Calvin says, of faith. It is a firm and certain knowledge of God's good will to us which being founded on the free promise given in Jesus Christ is revealed to our minds and sealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Or as the Westminster Confession defines it, faith is a work of the Holy Spirit 
whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls. Notice this, wrought by the ministry of the Word. And we talk about this from time to time, but, but you know why we never serve the Lord's Supper without preaching the Word. Why do we never serve the Lord's Supper without preaching the Word? Because we know that this is not, these aren't magical elements, but we must come to them with understanding. They are pictures, a, a visible sermon of what the Word says. They don't do anything for you apart from faith. And it is the Word that gives faith. We come to Christ by embracing Him through knowledge, recognizing who He is and what He demands. Remember, Jesus says that no one goes to war without counting the cost. Likewise, no one comes to Christ without knowing who it is that they are embracing. Faith is not distinct from knowledge. I think as we compare this idea that men embrace the kingdom, that we can use the example of the sower in the field and the types of soil to think about this. There are some men who are walking perhaps through the marketplace and they see this pearl of great price and they say, you know, I've never really been interested in pearls anyway. And they keep going. There are others who are satisfied to stop and appreciate the pearl. And maybe they'd be willing even to pay an entry fee and buy a ticket to come and gaze at the pearl occasionally, but they never buy it for themselves. They're never, they will never be persuaded it is worth the price that is required. The merchant shows the work of the Spirit is a convincing work. The work of, a, of the Spirit is a convincing work. He will stop at nothing the merchant will to make the pearl his own. And so we pause a minute to think, is, have you taken Christ to yourself in this way? Have you embraced Him knowing all that He is for you? Have you embraced Him knowing that He is the the sacrificial lamb, the one who has borne your sins on the cross, the one who reconciles you to the Father. Have you come to Him this way? Have you passed Him by? Are you content to look at Him occasionally and do maybe your religious bit? Or have you embraced Him? How might you know? Well, thirdly, notice that men find the kingdom, they embrace the kingdom, and they give up everything for the kingdom. This is the striking language of the parables, isn't it? Can you imagine someone finding a, a, a treasure in a field and then selling everything that he owns to go and buy that field or that pearl? And yet here is what we learn about these men as they do that very thing. Jesus wants us to understand that the kingdom is a treasure. It is a pearl of great price. Now, as you think back to first century Palestine, you may know this, but they didn't have elaborate banking systems. They didn't have Bitcoin in first century Palestine. So if you had valuables that you didn't want to be stolen in a time of war, what would you do with them? You didn't have a safety deposit box. 
So you might, if you owned land, you might find a place, dig a hole, and bury some of your most valuable things, maybe that engagement ring or your coins, you would bury them in that field. And that's what's happened here. And maybe this is a man who is working for someone in a field perhaps that isn't owned, and he's working there, and he finds this treasure, and what does he do? He covers it back up, and he goes and he buys that field. In the other example, we have pearls, the pearl of great price. Now, in Jesus' day, pearls were more valuable than diamonds or gold. Can you imagine that? They were very rare because they hadn't discovered how to manufacture these things yet. And so, in fact, Greek and Roman traders would travel down to Africa and they had discovered that they could take the winds over to India and it was in India that they would get pearls where men risked their lives to swim down and collect these oysters and get the pearls out of them. In fact, many Greek and Roman historians describe the, the, this time and, and the love for pearls with the word insania. There was a madness. I don't know if some of you may remember uh, certain Christmases where um, cabbage patch dolls and these kinds of things become very popular and people line up at the doors of Toys R Us to get inside and get these popular toys and then sell them on eBay. Oh, this is kind of the way that it was in, in, in uh, Jesus' day in first century Palestine. They loved pearls. People were grasping after pearls. In fact, there's a story about Cleopatra that when Mark Antony came to Egypt, she had these enormous pearl earrings. And in order to show the wealth of Egypt over Rome, she took one of the earrings out and she dissolved it in a drink of strong vinegar and drank it. In fact, the stories are told of Caligula as well, the Roman emperor about Jesus' time, that he would entertain his guests by taking pearls and dissolving them in a strong vinegar and they would drink them. And all of this was an ode to their great wealth. So when Jesus is drawing on this pearl, the pearls of great price, this is something that everybody can key into. What is Jesus teaching us? That to embrace Christ's kingdom requires the sacrifice of all else. When we embrace Christ, we leave nothing to come back to. When we embrace Christ, we yield everything to Him. There's an amazing story about when Elijah called Elisha to follow after him in the office of prophet. And there's this confusing little moment. Elisha was plowing with the oxen in the field. And Elijah came along and he took off his cloak and he laid it over on Elisha's shoulders. And Elisha's saying, what's, what's going on? And he says, let me go and kiss my mother and my father. You remember this story in the Gospels as well. Let me go and kiss my mother and my father. And Elijah says, what is it to me? You know what Elisha went and did? He went back, not to his home. He went back and he slaughtered all of his oxen and he took the yokes off of their necks and he cut it up and he built a fire and he cooked the meat of those oxen and he gave it to the people. And we're left thinking, well, 
what, why? Why would he do that? The answer is because when Elisha left in 1 Kings 19 to follow Elijah, he left nothing to come back to. It was a total commitment on his part. This is what Christ is using to describe the kingdom of heaven. When we come to him, we know that we have embraced his kingdom because there is a willingness for him to shape and mold you according to his word. In other words, he's saying you can't stand in both the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light at the same time. You can't be a son of the devil in one sense and a son of the kingdom in another sense. There's there's not a middle ground. When you come to Christ, in other words, as he's already said, either you are for me or you are against me. No middle ground. There's a total embrace. I leave everything behind. Every thought pattern, every love. I open my hands to the Lord Jesus Christ and I say, whatever you want to take away, take it away. My heart and my soul are yours. There's nothing I won't set aside if it keeps me from pleasing Christ my King. This is what perhaps Jesus meant. I'm sorry, Paul meant when he said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. But Paul would go on to say, wouldn't he, that in fact, embracing Christ in this way is not a loss at all to me. Because Christ is all my gain. Men find the kingdom. They embrace the kingdom. They give up all for the kingdom. Submitting all to Christ And then fourthly, we see that men receive joy in the kingdom. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be reminded that when Christ calls you as a slave, as it were, thinking of Romans chapter 6, you are slaves to righteousness. And that he's a kind king. And his yoke is not a burdensome one, is it? He calls you to receive rest. When you submit yourself to Christ and, you, and all of those other things are squeezed out of your life, what's being squeezed out is every other thing, every vain thing that you've sought joy in apart from Him. When you come into the kingdom in this way, you receive joy. Both men sold all that they had to obtain the kingdom. In the first parable, the man sold everything whatsoever because of joy, for the joy over it. And we're, we're reminded even here about the words about Jesus Christ, that, that he endured the suffering of the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him. What does this mean? What kind of a joy is this? Well, it is an everlasting joy. Now, turn over to Romans chapter 14.
In Romans chapter 14, Paul is encouraging the believers there to remember the source of their joy. And he teaches them not to let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What Paul is teaching here is that our joy is no longer set on any material thing. And what does that mean then? If that material thing is removed from me, if Christ by his providence, by his some affliction that he has appointed to me, takes away my health or my possessions, it doesn't take away my joy because my joy is not rooted in those things. It is rooted upon him. Or notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 1 Paul wrote, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Do you see that? Let's read it again. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What kind of a people is this? These Macedonian believers had come to faith in Christ perhaps when Paul had gone to the church at Thessalonica. And there was a severe persecution. And so what's happening is they're cut off from the means of material wealth, their jobs, they're fired from their jobs for professing faith in Christ. But what do they have left? They have an abundance of joy. Listen, so much joy, even in their extreme poverty, that they can share it with others in the form of generosity. This is the joy of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. It's not a material joy. Although He gives us material things and we enjoy them to His glory and He delights when we enjoy them. But it isn't rooted in that. It is rooted in Christ. Where does my joy come from? Where do I find joy in my affliction? Remembering that Christ has delivered me. I'm no longer a son of the devil. I'm a slave to righteousness. My inheritance is preserved for me in heaven. Rust and moth cannot destroy it. It is eternal and everlasting in Christ. When He comes to consummate His kingdom, I'll be there. I will be amongst the angels who are multitudes upon multitudes and all of the righteous singing the praises of Christ all the days of my everlasting life. That is my joy derived from communion with Christ through His Holy Spirit. Do you know that the word joy is related to the word grace? The word joy is kara. And the word for grace is charis. Christ's kingdom is one in which He rules over us, having graciously offered His life to pay for our sins, and reconcile us to the Father who graciously accepted the righteousness of Christ in our behalf and graciously sends His Holy Spirit into our hearts enabling us to see the beauty of Christ. 
God graciously enables men to discover Christ's kingdom where they embrace it and give up all for it and in which they find everlasting joy. Do you know that you will never give up anything in this life that Christ will not repay you for with double joy? In Christ, affliction only increases your joy in Christ. Persecution only increases your joy. Why? Because through these things, He assures your soul of your communion with Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that You sit in perpetual joy. And in your earthly ministry, you demonstrated your joy in your Father every day. Hunger could not separate you from it. The temptations of Satan could not separate you from it. And we ask, O Lord, that you would make our joy like yours, an uncompromised joy, a focused joy. And Lord, would you continue as you sanctify us Make us willing to give up whatsoever you require. Houses, family, friends, jobs, for your sake. Whatever you require, may we give it willingly. Because none of those things defines our joy for us. We ask this in your name. Amen.